Welcome to another edition of Lens Burning Bush. I am Len Harvey. Before I bring on my guest for the week, I want to talk about what's really burning my bush. So as we approach the last nights of Hanukkah, I was thinking how wonderful Christmas songs are. And I know people complain it's too early, it's, you know, whatever, but I actually enjoy the good music uh, and was wondering why we don't have better songs for Hanukkah. Now, I know Adam Sandler finally graced us with three Hanukkah songs now, and they're terrific, but we were stuck before that with dreidel, 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 I made it out of clay. Now, the reason I bring this up, because I don't know if you know this, but most of the classic Christmas songs are actually written by Jewish people. Yes, can you imagine this? So let me educate you. I found an article written written by, uh, I found an article that was written by G- Gersh Kurtzman back in 2017 titled, The Best Christmas Songs Were Actually Written by Jews. And that was in Newsweek. And I wanted to go over this and, and kind of give you uh, what was going on here. So certainly everyone knows that White Christmas was written by Irving Berlin. He also wrote God Bless America in Berlin's 1942 Dream of Snow on Christmas uh, made Bing Crosby a fortune, by the way. Uh, that doesn't even make like the top five Christmas songs. It's a pretty good one, but there's a lot of other songs that we hear. Obviously, the classic Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, that was actually written by Johnny Marks, who was born John David Marks in Mount Vernon, New York. And what's interesting, he based his song on a short story written by his brother-in-law, Robert May, who had gotten an assignment in 1939 by Montgomery Ward, to write a cheery Christmas book for shoppers. And the song made a huge uh, hit for Gene Autry back in 1949. Marks also wrote Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, A Holly Jolly Christmas, Silver and Gold, and Run, Rudolph, Run. Uh, There was also the Christmas song, the famous Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire by Robert Wells and Mel Torme. And long before he was the Velvet Fog, uh, Torme was the son of Russian Jewish immigrants with the surname Torma. So uh, interestingly enough, uh, you know, just a few of the songs that I brought up here, those are the good ones that Jewish people have written for Christmas. And it had me wondering, you wrote all these songs and you couldn't save a few for us? How different would, the, would it have been if Bing Crosby is singing, I'm dreaming of the lights of Hanukkah, or maybe rocking around the Hanukkah menorah, or even latkes burning on an open fire. What's actually funny is that because it's of the Christmas competition, it seems like there actually are more songs about Hanukkah than any other Jewish holiday. Well, let's be honest here. Who wants to write a, a song for Yom Kippur or any other Jewish holiday? It's uh, Hanukkah's fun. It's delicious. It lasts for eight days. And, you know, the only Hanukkah song most people know now with Adam Sandler, of course, but they knew Dreidel, Dreidel, Dreidel. But there's actually one song that you might know, and it was written by Peter, Paul, and Mary. It's called Light One Candle. And this is kind of like of the Puff the Magic Dragon. It kind of starts out a little bit slowly and then calmly builds to a crescendo that says, don't let the light go out. So Light One Candle is that uh, song. Peter, Paul, and Mary. Paul, uh, Peter talks about the light being justice, memory, and peace, and especially in a season of the year. So I guess we have a few uh, songs. And thank goodness for Adam Sandler, who aptly uh, put it. He said, tell your friend Veronica it's time for Hanukkah. But let's keep having the conversation if we ever decide to take our songs back. 
So with that being said, it's time to bring on my guest for the week. He is a multi-Emmy Award-winning news anchor on WLWT. He is uh, co-anchoring the 5611 newscast with his wife, Cherie Polello. Let's welcome for the second time, he last appeared on March the 27th, episode 51, the very talented Mike Dardis to Lens Burning Bush. And Mike, how are you? I'm coming to you live here, Lens. Stand by. I'm live here in Kenwood. I just dropped somebody off, uh, one of the kids. They're working at Skyline, so I hope you can hear me okay. There's breaking news in this parking lot. Oh, I love it. I love breaking news in the parking lot. And I uh, get you loud and clear, and now we're actually, I'm seeing you. It's uh, what, a, what a concept here uh, on, a, on a lovely Saturday. How you doing, by the way? That was uh, you're, you're a mountain of information, by the way. And, and some of the oldies that are goodies. I mean, all the songs that I heard in Rudolph and yeah. Frosty the Snow beautiful stuff absolutely and i love all the this this was not a, a you know attack because i actually love christmas music i'm one of the few that could listen to it you know more than just the time during the christmas season but i was just always wondering when i you know as as a jewish person who i'm kind of like right. jewish mike to be honest with you jewish um but to be honest uh, you know i've been to services and i'm thinking to myself as i go to these services and i'm singing you know don't let the light go out and, and all this other nonsense. And I'm thinking, couldn't we have some better songs? I mean, there's so many good songs that were written for Christmas and we're stuck with dreidel, dreidel, dreidel. I made it out of clay. You know, it's, it's, there's, there's just not right. I mean, come on, we, we need a little bit better. And all the songs you think you could have saved a few that would have been nice for us. That's all. That's all I ask. I, you were doing that. I was thinking ACDC hell's bells was, all I can think of. Oh, that would that would be terrific. Uh, you know, Hell's Bells would be right there. Right there. We need to take a few because we love Adam Sandler. He did a nice job. He even did the Eight Crazy Nights uh, video. Now, just to be honest here, Hanukkah is really a minor holiday in the Jewish religion. Not a big deal at all. They had um, they had a situation where the the uh, oil last it's supposed to last one night. It lasted for eight. So we celebrate uh, that whole thing. Uh, and I have kind of a, I hate to bring in a sad story, but I'm going to make it a little bit better. Unfortunately, we had our dog had passed away this week, uh, 11 uh, years. So, but I want to bring this up because I, I, it, it kind of gave us a little bit of a funny uh, twist to it uh, because we knew she was going to go. I mean, she had uh, liver cancer and it was not good. We knew that. But she came home on like November 2nd, uh, I think it was. And my wife is a vet tech, so she was able to you know, bring the dog in, and unfortunately it wasn't good, but she needed a blood transfusion. The the vets that said to me, or them, you know, basically saying that, you know what, it's going to last maybe a night at all. That's all it's going to be. And we're like, okay, well, I told my wife, I said, just do it. What, you know, if we get a day, we get two days. It, whatever it is, it's better than, than nothing, right? Um, so she did it, and I, I kid you not that it was like 21 days that it lasted. So I said to my, my wife and kids, I said beforehand, I said, she's like the Hanukkah miracle dog. You know, it was only supposed to last one night and it lasted for, for three weeks. So, uh, uh, unfortunately she passed away, but it's a, it's a, it's at least we had a little bit of a good story in the whole thing. I have a funny story for you. So I grew up in a small town, uh, Endicott, New York. And unfortunately I wasn't exposed to all the Jewish traditions until I got to college. I didn't know much about it. Um, and then my roommate was Jewish and, several of my friends at Syracuse University and uh, was exposed to their families and learned a lot about the faith. So the funny story is 
I was going for a Seder dinner one time at my friend Mark Stearns in uh, New York City and on the Upper East Side. And I called my mom to tell her that I was, you know, I was, I was going to wear a yarmulke, obviously, because I, I wanted to show respect to the family. And the grandparents were very traditional and they had me wear one. So I was explaining the story to my mom and she said, did you wear one of those Yamahas on your head? She said. <laughs> I said, no, mom, I, I didn't have a motorcycle on my head, but I, I did wear a yarmulke. But anyway, it's just funny. Uh, I think there's so many people who don't understand Judaism. And, no, uh, they don't. And, and, and it's no fault of anybody's. I mean, it's just not. I mean, we kind of keep a lot of the stuff to ourselves. Uh, and that's writing more songs. So we learn about this. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it just makes it, you know, because again, you have the 12 days of Christmas, the eight days of Hanukkah would have been a great song. I mean, that would have been, you know, we could have done that on the, on the eighth day of Hanukkah, my true love gave to me. I mean, come, we could have had something like that. Right. Don't you think it's uh, as long as, as long as you're not singing it, I I think that would be the key too. Yes, of course not. No, I don't, I I don't want to do that. (laughs) So, I, uh, you know, again, we, I love uh, the fact uh, this, this time of the year, I love the holiday season. It's, uh, yep. it's kind of great. Um, now getting on, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Cause I, I thought this was kind of funny. I don't know. You, you obviously were up with this, with the news because Brian Kelly, you know, former Cincinnati coach, Notre Dame coach, he goes to, he goes to LSU and he does a fake Southern accent. Like he's from Boston for crying out loud. And I don't know if you saw this, but there was a video of someone imitating uh, Coach Saban calling Brian Kelly. And he did both voices on a video and he did the voices on both. And he was like, as Coach Saban. And, you know, he just did the, the voice. And then he did Brian Kelly talking about maybe getting some sweet tea and uh, sitting there no. with the vapors and, you know, all this stuff. And it's it's kind of funny at, at LSU. I didn't know what your your thought of that. Leaving Notre Dame in the middle of the night, you know, just kind of uh, texting his team at the last minute saying, oh, sorry, you know. And then I'll be there at 7 in the morning. And I think, what was it, four minutes later he was back in the car? Is, is that right? Two. Two minutes. Two. What are your thoughts so, of these college coaches? I don't know. Go ahead. You were going to say something. Sorry. We have this forum and this podcast, and it's not like TV where it's like two minutes, Mike, two minutes. We have time to talk. So I have a lot of thoughts on this. We'll get around to Brian Kelly at the end, and he's he hasn't done it right. But in general, people criticize the college coaches for what's going on. I just have a couple of thoughts. Number one, The Rock makes $30 million for a movie. Morning anchors on the Today Show make $25 million a year because the Today Show makes $400 million for the company. CEOs of major companies make gazillions of dollars and all of that stuff, and nobody ever says anything. But for some reason, college coaches get this rap, you know, for making $100 million over 10 years. I say it's not their fault. It's what college football has created. College football has created a situation where We are less than two weeks away from the early signing period, yet now it's the end of the season and coaches are leaving and being wooed by other schools. They ought to push the signing period back to January or February so that the best coaches at the best programs who are all playing right now are not being interviewed for jobs. Luke Fickle should not have to think about the Oklahoma job, the Notre Dame job, all these jobs right now while they're recruiting kids in their living rooms. They should push that back so that we don't have this overlap. And they, there are no contracts in college football. If I wanted to go to Channel 19, Channel 12, or Channel uh, you know, 9 or whatever, I can't go. I have a non-compete, and I have to sit my contract out. 
In college football, you don't. You just signed a 10-year, $100 million deal at USC, Lincoln Riley. Next year, if I want to bring him to wherever, I can. It's that there are no contracts. There are no rules. And it creates a situation where if you're Lincoln Riley saying you're going to go to USC, how are you going to, you're recruiting right now. Are you going to tell a kid in the living room, well, I'm, I'm up for a job at USC right now, so I don't know what to tell you. Of course, you're not going to do that. You're in a tough spot. And, and you got to wait to hear what happens with the job before you tell the kid that you're not going there. So I don't blame the coaches, but I do blame Brian Kelly two times now. First of all, with Cincinnati, it's not, I would never blame a guy in that situation for going to Notre Dame from UC at that point back in 2009 or whenever it was, because it was a better job and it was a dream job. It's that he was at a banquet. He was telling his team in the media in the banquet room, I'm not leaving UC. Then he literally walks across the hall to an ESPN sit-down interview accepting the job. It's the way he's handled it now with this job at LSU. He's been doing the Notre Dame thing for 12 years. He's winning. You know, you get to that certain age. You need a new challenge in life. I don't blame a guy for leaving, especially for what he left for. But to go down there and suddenly have a Southern accent, standing on the court at an LSU football game and having that Southern draw and saying that this is the best school, the best president, the best athletic director, the best facilities. Come on, dude. I know. It's like, can you have, can you just say, hey, I'm leaving Notre Dame. Notre Dame was an amazing experience. I had a great experience there. I think I know how to coach, and I'm going to bring that here. Can you just do that? I mean, it's just unbelievable. I know. So I have one thought of this as well, and, and I don't have yeah. a problem with coaches – you know, doing it, they, they, they've got to better themselves. And, and, you know, I hate when they say I'm here at my dream job. And the next thing you know, they're, they're, they're moving on to another, another school. But the big thing is I don't have a problem with anybody. I don't have a problem with the money. I have none of that. What I have a problem with a coach can move and do whatever he wants to do, but a player has to sit out a year. If they want to transfer, they need to stop that as well. They need to let the players, if, 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 a player on, on Notre Dame wants to move now that Kelly's gone. They should be allowed to do that. And the same thing goes for Oklahoma. And the same thing goes because I don't think it's right that a coach, and, and I agree with you. I think that you need to postpone this. There is, should be, it shouldn't be fair that they're not coaching these bowl games. And, right. you know, we always bitch and moan about the players not wanting to play in these games, but it's okay for the coach to just leave. And, you know, Notre Dame's, uh, you know, and you're right. Luke Fickle should not have to concentrate on whether or not he's going to be the next coach of Notre Dame. He's coaching UC and he's trying to win a championship. I, I just don't, I don't like that. I, I don't, uh, you know, and it happens so quickly. It was just a kind of a domino effect of all these coaches and everybody's like, you know, Luke Fickle is going to be the next coach of Notre Dame. Thank goodness that wasn't the case, but it's just, you know, uh, you, you couldn't have blamed uh, Luke Fickle if he wanted to coach Notre Dame. I mean, let's face it. Yeah, well, a couple things. First of all, they are – thank God they changed the rules a little bit with players. It used to be five, five, four or five years ago, if you were a player, you could, you had to wait a whole year. Now they allow you at the end of the season at least to enter the transfer portal. So you're seeing, you're seeing this more and more. It used to be that a coach would literally rec recruit a kid, get him there, he'd be a freshman, and then he'd say, bye, I'm going to Notre Dame. And then the kid's stuck for a year or two. They're allowing kids now to transfer, which is good. And you're seeing that with the kids recruited by Lincoln Riley, who committed to Oklahoma. A lot of them are going now to USC, which is fine. 
The other thing I want to address is, you know, a lot of UC fans were, I was getting into it with some UC fans on Twitter. They are a loyal bunch, I will say. And, and they, they look at Luke Fickle like one of their family or like he's a football god and they should. So anytime I say anything about an open job, people would just hammer me and it was, it was kind of funny. But a lot of people were theorizing, and th this is what I found funny. If Luke Fickle got the Notre Dame job or if Luke Fickle takes the Oklahoma job on Sunday, he's the loyal guy who's going to stay through the college football playoff. And I'm trying to tell him that's not going to happen. You don't give $100 million to a guy and make him the face of your machine, your program, and then say, hey, we're recruiting the top athletes in the country right now, but I want you to stay for two weeks or a month that you see and finish out the season. It just doesn't happen. And that's why it's so unfair what college football has done to these coaches. As loyal as Luke Fickle is, and I know if he did leave, and I don't think he's going to at this point. I don't think, but who knows? I mean, we'll talk about that. But – you, as loyal as Luke Fickle is, you can't put him in that situation where you're going to give him the keys to a new Ferrari and say, drive it in a month, but right now I want you to stay back and drive this one. It's like it, it's they're not going to hire you to be the face of their program and miss out on this one month this golden month of recruiting athletes. No, agreed. And and I think that it's just the way the timing goes and they should really figure out a way to, to list least wait until after the playoff and then figure out how you can, you know, go right. and do that. And then and this way they can coach the full season and, it, and not just leave in the middle of the night, kind of like the, the Colts did from Baltimore to Indianapolis, right? They just took the Mayfair, the yeah, the Mayflower mm -hmm. uh, van and, and moved yeah. to uh, Indianapolis, kind of those things. And, and that's the, uh, the bad part about college football. It's so money. Uh, what are your thoughts? You know, you, you've got four teams making the, the, the you know, the playoff. I, I actually think they could do something where they make the bowl games worth something, where they put that into a little bit of a tournament um, to make it a little bit more attractive. Uh, this whole four thing, a uh, four team thing, and then UC could still get locked out even if they're unbeaten is stupid. Let them play. You know, maybe they play Alabama or they play wherever. I don't know. I, I don't. I haven't figured that all out. But they could have like several bowl games in in December before the, and then do New Year's Day or do something on New Year's Day like we we used to. We used to have all the bowl games on New Year's Day instead of having it. You know, January nineteenth at you know eight o'clock at night. I I just think there's so many better ways to do it. Well, obviously, television has changed the game. And, and when you have you used to be so cool to sit there on New Year's Day and watch five bowl games, but you're not getting the most out of your television audience. If you've got five games, including two on against each other, you know, it used to be like during the day, you'd have like the Cotton Bowl up against the Rose Bowl. And then at night, it'd be the Orange Bowl and the Sugar Bowl. Well, you're splitting, you're fracturing your audience. So now college football has realized, oh, it's a billion dollar industry and ESPN's now in the game and all these people want to watch college football. Let's spread it out. But they really watered it down with these. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, if you're a sponsor, you know, you're going to go after a sponsorship. But you have all these sponsorships. I don't even know which bowl games, which I don't know. It used to be the Orange Bowl. You knew what the yeah. Orange Bowl was. Now, like the McCullough Weed Eater, blah, blah, blah bowl. And I don't even know which bowl's which. Um, but I will say, as far as the tournament, I don't want to go too much farther. Um, I think UC, by the way, is going to be in with a win. If they, if they win today, they are in. I, you know, There's no doubt about it in my mind. I don't want to go too much farther. I'm thinking maybe, for me, honestly, six teams yeah. where the top get a bye. I don't think you want college football to be like the NFL where it's like three or four weeks of playoffs. I just think you're asking a whole lot. 
you know, and, and, you're, and these guys are beaten down as it is to add so many games to the end of the season. I, I think maybe six teams. I don't think the number eight team, you know, is going to win the national championship. I just don't think it's going to happen year after year. It's not like the NFL where the Bucks can run through as a wild card or whatever. I, I think you're probably getting the champion out of the top three or four anyway. So I think if you go top six, you know, and there's still going to be fights and arguments about who's the sixth. But I don't think there's going to be fights and arguments about who's going to be your champion. I think if you have the top six, allow the top two to have a bye, have the other four play off and then join, that would be something that I would like to see. But beyond that, I don't want to see too much more, I don't think. The only thing I could think of that would work possibly, and I like your six-team idea, I was thinking five because I would have the five and the four team play each other to play in for the four so that you would have this way there's no de- – debate you know you've got the four team or the five like one year Ohio State was out looking in you got you know maybe you know it could happen where if UC was out looking in you know they should have the right to play whoever Oklahoma State or whoever that number four would be I think that would be fair to to show okay well now we've really tested these four teams this is who it should be uh, the one team's usually not debatable most of the time. In this case, Georgia, if they went out, obviously it's it's a no-brainer. But um, Alabama, you know, here's a situation where everybody says that if UC, if Alabama played UC, the, the spread would be over 10 points. Uh, Alabama would be favored. But, you know, that doesn't mean anything, right? But I just think that they should play the games uh, and, and have, if you're going to pick four, have a fifth team where the four and the five play the week before, or however, maybe they play on New Year's Day, and then you bring them back on like the 19th or whatever that number uh, that, that is. There's plenty of, of room. You could also, they play the championship game so far out now that you could move it to the week between the Super Bowl of the NFL where there's yep. nothing going on. You could have the championship game then. So Whatever they do, though, I, I will say this. You know, I know that it's, it's imperfect, but I love college football. I love it more than anything else. I love, and I and I grew up an NFL fan first. My son goes to Ohio State, so I take a lot of grief from the UC fans. We're all allowed to coexist, um, and I do root for UC, and I want them to win today, and I want them to get there. But me just going out on Twitter and saying I'm an Ohio State fan because my son goes there, oh, my gosh, the UC fans crush me. It's like they're big brother. They're the hated big brother. They always get all the talk. Uh, but I just absolutely love, whether it's going down to Clifton to a game, which is a beautiful campus, a beautiful setting for a game, going to Columbus to the shoe to watch a game, the, 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 thing, the lineage that goes back 40 and 50 years, people who graduated from there, the love, the passion for their school or their city. Uh, and, and, and you can tell by the ratings. I mean, the ratings are through the roof on college football. And even though they're paying athletes now, and even though the coaches are making a gazillion, they're doing something right. So just don't mess it up. I can't, I don't want to swear, but you know the saying that yeah. don't mess it up. But yeah, exactly. Don't, don't blank it up, college football, because what you got right now is so good. It's so good. And, and I love, I love, God, it's on a Saturday to watch these night games and get ready for Alabama to play Auburn or, or Ohio State to play Michigan, even though it didn't go well for my son's school. Just those traditions and rivalries is so much fun. It's great. Yeah, I love the Ohio State-Michigan game. I enjoy that every year, and I, I agree with you. The, the the rivalries are really good, and if you did too many more of this, these games wouldn't be as important. So I agree wholeheartedly. I think that uh, one thing I don't like, 
I really love college football on Saturday, and and I do not like having these games on Tuesday night. Um, playing some of these games. I know you have to fill some time with TV. I don't like the NFL doing Thursday night either, but you know, this is the, uh, this is the, you know, what we are right now. We, we just have it on all. I used to love, you know, Saturday was college. Sunday was NFL and maybe, you know, Monday uh, as well, but now we've got it every night of the week and it's just, it's too much. Well, I, I think what you're seeing, just like I talked about spreading out the bowl games, you have these smaller conferences, and, and if you look at it the other way, it's ingenious. The MAC, they call it MACTION. Uh, you know, they said, hey, we want to be on TV. And they go, well, you can't be on Saturday nights against uh, Alabama. You can't be on Thursday nights against this. Well, we'll play games on Mondays and Tuesdays. ESPN says, okay. So the MAC conference and conferences like that have taken the hit and turn, not played on a Saturday so they can play on the following Tuesday or Monday. And so now Miami gets to play Toledo on a Tuesday night on ESPN because they chose to restructure their schedule so they could get a piece of the pie. So I, I get what you're saying. It is watered down, and, and I guess we don't have to watch. Um, to me, the NFL is the one that's watered down. Uh, this, uh, you know, Sunday Night Football is on, on, uh, on our network, on NBC, and I think that's worked out okay. You know, at first I was like, uh, you know, it's a lot of football for a Sunday, but I guess that's okay. And, you know, Monday, you know, I don't know. I, I would almost do away with the Thursday night thing. Yeah. It's just, it is too much, I, I think, for the players. And, and I guess the fans like to see it. But for me, selfishly, like you're talking from your point of view, for me, I don't need to see football. I want it to be special. Yeah. And there is special about waiting an entire week getting pumped up like you feel like a linebacker you're I'm 50 years you know in my 50s and I feel like I'm still playing the game and all pumped up about the Bengals playing the Chargers this Sunday and I can't wait for the game it's like then there's a game Thursday and then there's a game the Saturday during at the end of the year they play two Saturday games it's like okay you're right it's a little watered down exactly you like pizza but you don't want to eat it seven days a week right that's the way it works right now what people don't know about you Mike is before you moved into news in 2000 you were a sportscaster in Philadelphia, so that's why I bring up sports with you because I know I know that you could talk it. You uh, actually hosted Major League Baseball pregame shows, and you did some work uh, for the Eagles. You were you were twice named AP Sportscaster of the Year in Pennsylvania. So people don't know that they think, oh, Mike's this hard news guy, which which you are, you know now. But uh, I like talking sports, and I, I knew you would uh, fit the bill. Well, you know, and I'm George Vogel and Brandon Seho's biggest nightmare because. Um, I love sports so much. And when they hear me walking into their office, they're like, oh, great. What what idea do you have now? <laughs> what did you see that we need to get in the sports cast? They do such a great job. But I, it's like I meddle. It's like it's like my little, uh, you know, uh, guilty pleasure where I walk down and, and walk into their office when I see something. And I say, did you see this? Did you see that? But no, I, I love doing sports. And I was in Philadelphia for about a decade and I traveled with the team and did the Andy Reid show. Um, and then before that, the Ray Rhodes show, I hosted the coaches show for the Eagles and uh, did some things for the Phillies pregame show. And I loved it. Um, I, I really enjoyed it, but I found that when you get too close to the team, sometimes it's like Christmas. You learn a little bit about the business behind the, 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 the Christmas tree and the, the magic. It's like there were a lot of players who I really, really got to like and get close to and love and respect. And then I saw some things behind the scenes that I'm like, oh, 
maybe I don't want to be a fan anymore. I don't want to know. Th- yeah. I don't want to know all the stuff that's going on behind closed doors because some of them are such great guys, and then some of them are like, uh. You don't want like a restaurant. You don't want to know how the sausage gets made. A little Sopranos reference. You don't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> you so, know. So I love, love, love my time in sports, but now I really, really, you know, it, it, people said. I'll never forget. I'm not going to even name her, but when I was making the switch, it was a tough decision. I remember they offered it to me a couple times to go to the lead anchor job in Philly, and I turned it down a couple times, and finally I accepted it. And a lot of people in the building there were resentful that they would give the the news job to a sports guy, and people in town wondered how I would do. And I remember one news reporter went in and dropped 10 New York Times, Sunday New York Times, on my news director's desk and said, here, give this to Mike. Hopefully he can read up for his new job. Oh, and, that's mean. Yeah. And I'll never forget her name. I'm not going to repeat it because I don't want to do that. But she was fired by, the, or she was, she's not in the business. She, uh, she got out of the business about four or five years later. Um, to me, it's like it wasn't that difficult a transition. I literally switched the news radio in my car to the, or the sports radio in my car to news radio in my car. Telling a story is telling a story is telling a story. And it's as simple as that. And the passion that you see in sports is the same passion you see in news stories. Sometimes there's way more at stake though, obviously. The passion about winning and losing a game is replaced by the passion of a family trying to take care of their kid or some terrible tragedy happening in their lives or some beautiful thing happening in their lives. And so it's a different degree of passion, but I learned that telling a story is the same and you just have to listen to people. You have to listen to what they're saying. Then you have to follow it up with a, with a question after you, after you're actually listening, you don't come in with 10 questions. It's like, okay, here's my first question. Oh, I didn't even hear anything you said. Here's my second question. When you're doing an interview with an important player in the news world, sit down and listen. And, and, and I will say over the years, I've learned to ask tougher questions in sports as a sports fan growing up, you're so enamored. And you're so afraid, so afraid of the athletes and asking them a tough question. And then they say they say something mean. And then you, you get all worried that the team's not going to like you anymore when you're younger. And now I feel like in on the news side, it's, I, I feel a responsibility now to the people at home that I'm going to ask the tough question and I'm going to get the right answer and I'm going to do my homework and I'm going to get the right information. I'm going to convey it to the viewer. So I've learned so much over the years, but I did love, absolutely love my time in sports. And I don't want to color it with this pencil that, you know, there was all these bad things because it's so much fun. I love traveling. I love seeing all these cities. I love seeing all these stadiums. And I love being around it all. And I'll never, ever, you know, lose that memory. It was amazing at the time. But it's also difficult on your family life because when you're a sportscaster, especially back in the 90s when stations had more money or they didn't have more money, they were spending more money. And now you have all of these hookups where you can do news conferences on like we're doing here. Yeah. It's like, you know, every station has access to the locker room now by just plugging in before you had to send road crews. You had to send people to every home and away game to cover them. And we were doing that. And so I got to go to with the flyers and the playoffs uh, to Buffalo and Tampa Bay. And I got to go with the college basketball teams, all the, the NCAA tournaments, Villanova and Penn and, and then in Drexel and, and LaSalle and Philadelphia and I got to cover Eagles playoff games and all of that. So I got to see and do a lot of things. And I'll never forget that time. It was such an amazing time in my life. But now I get to go watch a rec basketball game 
with Cherie and watch the kids play, or I get to go visit my son in Columbus on a Saturday, or I get to do whatever. And I didn't get to do that before because I was traveling an awful lot because the games are on the weekends. Agreed. And, and I talked about that. I, I do. Um, I've done the same. I mean, I did not up to your level, but I did news and traffic and on the radio and I, I did sports. I, I did play by play and I, I traveled a little bit with that. And, and now I do elder football on Friday nights and it's um, it's fun to get to do that. But you're right. It's it takes a lot. I had to I had to back away for about 10 years because my family life was important. You were missing. I was missing too many things every Friday night having to cover right. cover football or, you know, you said traveling. I mean, I would love to have you know, done baseball or, or, you know, do a team. But when you have to travel 160 days a year, it's, it's, it's a lot and it's, it's every day and and it's too much. You're right. You have to have a little bit of a balance and you do now, now you get to work with your wife, which is a, which is a great, it could be a good and bad for some people. (laughs) I don't know if I could do it. Uh, I like the chemistry that, that you guys have on the air. I think it's, 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 it's the best. I mean, anything that anybody sees, you can see, uh, the passion in both of you, um, you know, you both love news, but together it makes it even better. And, you know, being married is a plus, right? Well, you know, we, uh, we love doing it and we try not to push it in anyone's face. You know, once in a while on social media, we'll celebrate an anniversary or talk about each other, but we try not to really mention it too much. Um, because I, I don't, I think the viewers don't, you know, they, some of a lot of folks care. You know, a lot of folks are really love it and support us and all that. But I think it's also important that they know that the job comes first, and we're news anchors first when we're out there. We're not a married couple. Um, it, it is great because uh, we know each other. We know the business. So if I get called in at three in the morning because there's been something terrible that happens in the city, you don't have your wife saying, "Tell them no." You know, we're sleeping right now. Or if, if UC wins today and uh, one of us has to go to the bowl game and it ruins our New Year's Eve plans or something like that, you know, the other one says, okay, I understand it's the job. It's what we have to do. So that thing's a good part of it. Also, knowing each other so well on the air, you cannot substitute for that kind of chemistry and connection. When we're on the air doing breaking news and we're going five hours straight without a script when there's the unrest in Cincinnati or something happening uh, somewhere else where we're talking and talking and talking. We're literally without writing it down. I'll look at her and she knows what I'm about to say, how to lead into me, when to stop. And then I kind of like, we'll give her a signal and she knows what to do. You cannot substitute. The chemistry is unmatched. Um, Do we have married squabble things that go on at work sometimes? Yes. Is it difficult sometimes? I mean, we've had them coming right up, you know, where you're you're like just things aren't going well that day with the kids or things aren't going. We disagreed on something and it comes right up until news time and then the switch goes off. And it's it's hard sometimes, but it's never, ever, ever filtered over into what we do on the anchor desk. We just switch it off and it's a job. But, yeah, we love doing it together. Um, I couldn't ask for a better anchor partner and and wife, and it's it's been it's been an amazing situation, honestly. Well, Cherie will be on in two weeks, so we'll ask her again. Uh, she'll come back on, and and I, and I know she feels the same way, and she does it. I think you guys should do. We need to bring back the old Bert Convy Tattletale show, and you know, Bert Convy's no longer with us, but 
the Tattletale show. Do you remember that where they wore the headsets and yep. uh, the banana section? I think we need to bring that back. But uh, Mike, we could I could talk with you for hours. It's a it's a pleasure uh, to do this. Now you can like Lens Burning Bush on Facebook at Lens Burning Bush. You can follow along on Twitter at Lens Burning Bush as well. YouTube channel is Len Harvey, and I'm going to post a video uh, of this today's uh, broadcast on um, YouTube as well. So you can like subscribe to that as well. We can, we're on all over iTunes, Spotify, Google play, Podbean, iHeartRadio, tune in, and you can ask Alexa to play lens burning Bush, but make sure you say lens burning Bush podcast. If you're in the living room, cause you don't know what's going to come up if you, if you say that, but uh, it's, it's been fun, Mike. I, I, I love that you come on. And it, like you said, you get to let your hair down um, and whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever hair you have left, it, I understand. But it, it, yeah. it, it's good that you get to be yourself a little bit. I know, you know, doing the news, everything's got to be serious. So this is this is fun. We talked about uh, the Christmas music and Hanukkah, the lack of Hanukkah, good Hanukkah songs. So hopefully we can change that. But I, I like to uh, kibitz about all the that kind of stuff. But uh, but, uh, you know, thanks again for for doing this. It's 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 a pleasure. I'll retweet. I'll share on Facebook. Do it again sometime and uh, take care of yourself. Have a good one, okay? All right. Well, thanks, Mike Dardis. I'm Len Harvey. We'll be back with another episode of Lens Burning Bush next week. So long.